It's pretty well known in finance that hedge funds can be among the most secretive types of investment firms. Behind that, there's this idea that this secrecy and lack of transparency gives them an extra edge over their competitors. But there's this one hedge fund manager who took a pretty unusual step within his industry. He listed his firm on the stock market. So if you're a public company, obviously you report four times a year. You have to publish securities filings. That's uh, time-consuming and onerous, and you're subject to SEC regulation. That's the FT's Wall Street editor, Sujit Indap. He says that when a hedge fund manager named Daniel Ock decided to take his company public back in 2007, this was a surprising move. And just that kind of scrutiny is not something many hedge fund founders want, who are uh, often very secretive and uh, already have a stable of investors who are loyal to them. By taking his firm public in 2007, Dan Ock made a bold bet on not only himself, but also the longevity of his hedge fund, that it would continue to operate long past his own career. But that move to go public also opened him and his company up to loads more scrutiny from investors, regulators, and the media. And well, more than 15 years later, things haven't turned out exactly the way he'd hoped. I'm Michaela Tendera from the Financial Times. Today on Behind the Money, we're going inside a messy Wall Street saga to see how a hedge fund's plans to list on public markets years ago backfired. And what that all says about how hedge funds fit into the public markets. This might sound obvious, but hedge funds are different beasts than your typical company. Here's Sujit again. Hedge funds ultimately are built around a very small group of very smart and very talented people. And the risk with that model is that they can leave at any point or they can lose their magic touch. And that's just different than a typical big company. In the case of the hedge fund Ziff, that magic touch that Sujit's talking about was for a long time tied to its founder, Dan Ock. Here's the FT's deputy corporate finance editor in the U.S., Hortensa Aliai. Dan Ock has managed to keep a pretty low profile. Not that much is known about him other than he grew up in New Jersey. He went to Wharton and he began his career at Goldman Sachs in 1982, spending quite a long time there to eventually become its co-head of proprietary equity trading. In the mid-1990s, Ock decides to branch out on his own and he launches a hedge fund called Ockziff Capital Management. And into the 2000s, Ockziff becomes quite successful. By 2007, the fund's assets had grown to about $27 billion. This is the sort of heyday of the hedge fund industry. It's been through this period of enormous growth. And a lot of the hedge fund founders, including Dan Ock himself, had started to think about how do we ensure the survival of these firms beyond us. So Ock's thinking about how to make his fund last beyond his own individual career and how to turn his business into an institution. Now, this is something that a lot of Wall Street firms are thinking about around this time. That's companies like the private equity firms Blackstone and Fortress Investment Group. So one way to achieve that goal is to take your company public. So when a 
firm goes public, that makes it a institution, right? So there is a board of directors that will have decision-making power that gets to vote on things like pay and who runs the company and who they hire and who they fire. So it goes beyond just the founder himself. Going public has a lot of benefits. One is that you get an immediate cash injection by raising money on the stock market. By having shares, it's an avenue to keep growing the firm. You can use the shares to buy other asset managers or pay employees or pay new recruits. And it's just an easier way to grow the business. And the other is that, obviously, if the share price performs well, you become a billionaire. So the IPO for Oxif is generally a success. The fund's market cap debuts at around $12 billion. And when the financial crisis hits, they manage to survive. Oxif isn't the sort of firm that is known for these outsized returns, but it's known for consistency and it delivers a fairly good performance. In the aftermath of the financial crisis, a new star at the firm surfaces. His name is Jimmy Levin. Now, this is a name that you'll want to remember. There's a very famous story about how Levin and Ock first met, which is that Levin in the 90s was working at a summer camp attended by Ock's son, and he was teaching his son how to water ski. So that was the first introduction between the two. And flash forward several years into the future, Levin's gone to university, he started his career in finance, and now he's working at Oxif. So it turns out that Levin has this really good talent in the credit business. And as we were over the financial crisis in 2008, the housing market is at bottom and things are sort of starting to climb up again. Levin makes this big outsized bet on structured credit. And this really puts his name up in lights within Oxif. Now, this is a big deal. Remember, at a hedge fund, the whole business is only as valuable as the people inside of it. So it's massive for the firm to have this young trader winning these kinds of bets. Immediately, he is seen as a star trader. And he becomes Ock's protege. He gets paid a lot of money and he becomes a really, really important part of the business because the investors who are putting money into Oxif see him as sort of the, the talent. Levin's big credit bet pays off in 2012. He ends up making about $2 billion from it. But within just a few years, things take a turn for the worse. Federal prosecutors filed this claim alleging that Oxif spent tens of millions of dollars bribing officials in countries such as Libya and the Democratic Republic of Congo. In short, the firm's accused of paying bribes in at least five countries in Africa to win business. In 2016, the firm pays U.S. authorities more than $400 million to settle the criminal and civil charges against it. It's one of the largest penalties ever levied against a hedge fund. I think at the time, the only thing that Ock really said was that it was a quote-unquote deeply disappointing episode for the hedge fund. The fund tries to put all this behind them, but that doesn't really work. Clients are obviously really spooked. And This whole drive to institutionalize the hedge fund world and get endowments and pension funds to become your main investors, well, those places are also much more susceptible to reputational risk. So if you have something like a bribery scandal in Africa, they are going to struggle to to stay as investors, right? Now, if Oxif had been a private hedge fund, 
yes, they probably would have seen these investors redeem their cash, but that would have been the extent of the damage. Because it was a public hedge fund, what happened was that investors saw the impact that this fine was having and they sold out of the shares. So all of a sudden you go from your shares peaking at something like $300 and now they've tanked to $20. Lots of investors are pulling their money out of Oxif. But inside the firm, some people like Danok's protege Jimmy Levin see this chaos as an opportunity for leverage. He's had this really successful run of the company. Um, They are fearful that they're going to lose some of their top talent. And they understand that a lot of the investors who stick with Oxif are loyal to these traders. In an effort to keep Levin with Oxif, the firm gives Levin this massive pay package worth about $280 million. Dan Ock even takes about $100 million worth of his own personal company shares and gives them to Levin. And Ock picks Levin to be the firm's co-chief investment officer. Hortensa tells me that these are pretty clear signals. The combination of the pay package, the new title... Plus, the success he'd already had at the firm made it look like he was going to be the company's next CEO. In the years ahead, things don't go the way that Ock probably planned when he took his firm public in 2007. His efforts years earlier to turn his company into an institution seemed to be working against him. After the bribery scandal, the fund struggles to move forward and it fails to perform as well as its peers. In 2018, Dan Ock officially leaves his job as CEO. And many people thought Levin would be the guy to take over for him. But that's not exactly what happens. Instead, a banker from Credit Suisse comes in to lead the firm. This is a huge shock to most people who know the firm. You don't hand someone a $280 million pay package if they're not going to take over the firm. The next year, in 2019, the company goes through a rebrand in an effort to further distance itself from the scandal. It changes its name from Oxif to Sculptor Capital Management. Even with the new name Sculptor, the firm continues to struggle. The other CEO leaves, and in 2020, the board does finally appoint Jimmy Levin to take over the company. But here's where things get interesting. While Ox left his job as CEO, that doesn't mean he's disappeared from the picture. When the firm IPO'd, Ock was very smart about it, right? He didn't want to lose control of the firm. So actually, Ock is still its largest shareholder. And through the structure that they used, it meant that Ock could effectively still control the firm. He has this power as a large shareholder to... Uh, express his dissatisfaction to vote against certain proposals, and he wields it. In 2021, Ock files a legal claim against Sculptor. He says he wants to view the company's books because he thinks that Jimmy Levin, whose 2019 pay package had been about $130 million, was being paid too much money. So in, in these legal filings, Ock compares Levin's salary to that of J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon and Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon. The irony being that this all began with with Ock himself. And he basically accuses the board of not having, you know, appropriate oversight on this um, and being too much in 
Levin's pocket, which they deny. There are a flurry of accusations and court filings. And all of this is problematic for sculptors' business. So again, it affects the share price. But also now investors are having just stomached this bribery scandal, the change in leadership, are now sort of having to come to terms with the fact that Ock is fighting Levin and the board. Hortensa, can you help me out here? Why is there this bad blood between Dan Ock and Jimmy Levin? I mean, I don't really understand how they went from this protege-mentor relationship to apparently in this big feud. So unless there is a personal matter which has not come into the public domain, I think it's largely because Ock felt like he was giving Jimmy all of these things and Jimmy kept saying, well, I want more. And that's understandable. The hedge fund industry runs on its talent, on the people who are making money. And Levin is a star trader who's able to command his price. So Ock ends up giving him what he wants. But once Ock has left the business, the gloves are off. He doesn't feel like he has to acquiesce to Levin's demands anymore. And now he takes the other side and says, actually, this guy's being paid too much money. All these events are tough on the hedge fund. It's not a good position for investors, and there's a lack of stability. And so the fund and the board are incentivized to find a way to resolve this. And the way that they decide to do that is to form this special committee where they can sell Sculptor. And now, that future that Dan Ock had likely envisioned for his hedge fund beyond his own career, looks like it might be slipping away. In July this year, it's announced that a buyer has been found. It's an investment firm called Rhythm Capital. They're going to purchase Sculptor for around $640 million. Now remember, this company IPO'd in 2007 at a $12 billion valuation. That means the firm's shareholders have lost more than $10 billion. And Sujit says that this is pretty remarkable. You don't see companies that have lost uh, 95% of their value. Uh, That's highly uh, unusual, uh, particularly one with this kind of uh, famed founders and one-time place in in Wall Street. But this isn't the end of the story. The deal doesn't go through immediately. Remember, we know that Dan Ock still has this big stake in the company, and the deal needs to be approved by the shareholders. Dan Ock comes back out and says, no, I don't accept this deal. It's a really bad deal for shareholders. It undervalues the company and, you know, the board is breaching its fiduciary duty again and is not getting the best deal for shareholders. But there's also something else to keep in mind. Ock, as the founder of the firm, happens to have something that ordinary shareholders of the public sculptor do not. And what that is, is called a tax receivable agreement, which just think of it really as a pile of money or the right to a pile of money and that figure is almost $200 million. And that that pile of money, which is supposed to be paid by a sculptor for several years, uh, in, in the, the context of a buyout uh, or a merger, uh, the acquirer has to decide what they want to do with that. And so that, that pile of money, the tax receivable agreement, how that is negotiated for ultimately becomes a sticking point in uh, how Ock views the rhythm deal. So over the next couple of months, there's this big back and forth. Another bidder comes in, but the sculptor board declines their offer. Then Rhythm comes back and raises their offer. 
Then they raise it again in October to an amount that the board and Dan Ock finally agree to, $720 million. Uh, and if you read the fine print in the securities filings, in fact, uh, the company had made some concessions to Dan Ock, economic ones. Um, they had paid $5.5 million in transaction and legal expenses from his involvement in the kind of fighting over this transaction over the last year. And in the firm's last dying breath, Ock secures an additional concession from Rhythm Capital. That special pot of money Sujit mentioned, the tax receivable agreement, Ock gets Rhythm to increase that value from $170 million up to almost $300 million. And that is enough for him to finally come around and drop his litigation and support the transaction. Finally, earlier this month in November, shareholders including Dan Ock have a vote to approve the $720 million sale to Rhythm Capital. It passes. So it means that Sculptor is no longer going to be publicly traded. It will be now a subsidiary of Rhythm Capital. Uh, Sculptor manages roughly $30 billion. That now will be a part of uh, Rhythm. It'll be uh, its own unit, uh, and the company in many many uh, senses will be the same one. It just won't be publicly traded. It'll just be owned by this other company, and uh, all the, um, the, the public shareholders will be bought out at $12.70 per share. So Ock is officially done with the hedge fund he started nearly 30 years ago. And the hedge fund doesn't exist as an independent entity anymore. And Jimmy Levin is now an employee of Rhythm Capital. He has uh, been uh, being awarded uh, pay and compensation in the tens of millions of dollars to, to stay and be incentivized to continue to generate returns. And that is, I think, one of the reasons Rhythm bought this company. They bought it for obviously the sculptor name and its funds, but obviously the, the investors who are on top of that, starting with Jimmy Levin. So, Hortensa, what can we learn from this whole saga? So very often when, when these hedge funds were being created at the time when the industry was flourishing, they became associated with their founders. So for every hedge fund, in, in Oxif's case, it was Dan Ock, but for every hedge fund, there was the founder who sort of embodied the firm. And that has proven to be a very difficult thing to move away from, so much so that a lot of hedge funds are no longer looking at picking one successor, but they haven't had quite the same success at moving on beyond the founder that private equity firms, for example, have had. Suji, you've reported on some of these private equity firms that Hortense is talking about for a while now. What have you seen in that area? A good contrast with Oxif is Blackstone, uh, which also went public in 2007 around the same time as Oxif did. They were both pioneers in taking public companies that were traditional private investing partnerships. And in fact, their fortunes have completely diverged. Blackstone, uh, its leadership has gone well beyond the founders, uh, and it expects to, to be a permanent institution for generations to come. And in some senses, the model of what Danok wanted to do, but ultimately fell short. Yeah, that's true. Blackstone even passed the mark of $1 trillion in assets under management this year. So why do you think that is, that these two businesses went in such different directions? Hedge funds and private equity ultimately have proven to be very different businesses. The capital that private equity firms raise has proved to be much more uh, durable and long-lasting. Hedge funds are much more erratic and volatile, so there's uh, a macro trend. Uh, but there's also a story about the nuts and bolts of building businesses, which is a very different thing than being good at picking investments and something Blackstone has mastered in a way Oxif just wasn't able to. 
I mean, I guess this is the irony of it is that the IPO was supposed to solve the succession issue, which yeah is is a huge problem in the hedge fund industry uh, and arguably in private equity as well. But all the, all of these famous quote unquote you know masters of the universe who are these big personalities that really dominate their firms, well they won't live forever, <laughs> and so there needs to be these plans in place about ensuring the continuity of the business when this founder retires, leaves, dies. And that's something that the hedge fund industry has really struggled with. Behind the Money is hosted by me, Mikaela Tendera. Safia Ahmed is our producer. Topher Forges and Manuela Saragosa are our executive producers. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco and Breen Turner. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.